Amen. Y'all go ahead, have a seat. It's so good to be with you here tonight. I'm so thankful for uh, Pastor Logan asking me to preach. Um, I got to start out with warning you first, if I just abruptly have to leave, my wife and I are expecting our third child, and she is due any week. So, yeah, we, it's okay to clap. So if I just randomly say, oh baby, and run away, someone come up here and close this thing down, but not the kid that's carrying around some Red Bulls, because... I think he's too fired up. He offered me one and my heart would explode. So we are starting this new sermon series tonight. And when Logan came to me and said, hey, do you want to preach? We're starting a sermon series called The Verge. I'm a little bit older than you guys. I don't know if verge is like a cool term that y'all use a lot. Uh, but for me, when I hear the word verge, I think of like a sports team. Man, I'm an Atlanta sports fan. So every year I'm like, we are on the verge of greatness and until recently, we never were, but now we are. And so Georgia's winning, you know, the Falcons are always terrible, and the Braves, well, they're the Braves. But we're always, always think of verbs like, man, we're on the verge of something happening. But then also, I use the word a lot with friends and families to say the verge is like something serious, like a serious condition. Like, I don't know if you pay attention to what's going on in the world, but a lot of times people tell me, Pastor, we're on the verge of World War III. And I'm like, well, you better be praying if we are, and if we're not, just keep following Jesus. But we use that word to say, hey, something big is about to happen. And so when I think we are on the verge of seeing God move, that's how we're going to use the word tonight. Logan already gave you the definition, but I seriously believe that when we talk about the verge, that means we are anticipating that something big is going to happen, not with our sports team, not necessarily in the physical realm, but we believe that God is going to move. And here's why I believe that we're on the verge of something. It's funny that God put this on Logan's heart because in 2024, our phrase at Christ's place is, we are expecting God to move. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you've expected God to move in your life? When's the last time you've expected God to move in your heart, in your relationship, in your home, in your college, in your community? We are expecting God to move. And here's the reality. It's not that God is going to move more than he is already moving. God is always moving. But we are now getting to a point where we are desperate enough to beg for him to move. We are now at the point where we are desperate enough to say, God, would you move? I wrote this quote down because I'm pretty sure I heard it from Batman or something. It said, the light shines the brightest when the night is the darkest. The light shines the brightest when the night is the darkest. And I don't know if you've paid attention to our culture. We are the most progressed culture we have the most technology that we've ever had. We are more sophisticated than any culture in the history of the world, yet it has not helped us one bit. I believe our culture is starting to realize, me and you, who we live around, we are all starting to realize that we are desperate. We have the most money that we've ever had. We have the most sophistication that we have ever had, and yet the suicide rates continue to climb each and every year. 
The depression rates continue to climb each and every year. There are wars. There are murders. Why? Because it does not work. No matter how much we get in this life, no matter how much we get in this world, history teaches us, the present teaches us, it's not enough. If you want to be kind of depressed for a little bit, go research all the lottery winners. They win all the money in the world, and I think it's like 90-something percent of them. I don't know the statistic, but a lot of them go poor within years. It's because it's not enough. And here's what I'm praying for. I am desperate to see a move of God in this room, in our lives, and in our community. That's what I am praying for, that we would see a move of God and that we would come to grips with there is one hope, nothing else. And that's why I believe we're on the verge of something is because the world is figuring out that there is no hope. But we as believers, those who know the Bible, know that there is one true hope. And so we are praying for, to put it in some old terms. I don't know how y'all grew up, but I grew up in church, and we use the term revival. How many of you have ever heard the term revival? Yeah? How many of you have ever been to a revival? A few of you? Wow. High five to you. I did, and I thought I was old. We're kind of cool. Not really. So... We are praying for a revival, for God to start a revival in our hearts. And this usually begins when we realize and understand the reality of sin. Have you ever had reality set in for you? You know that that phrase, reality sets in? Here's a good illustration, right? When you got your first job and you got your first paycheck, and you saw all the taxes that came out of your paycheck, reality sets in. For some of you, when you graduate and those student loans come knocking like the Grim Reaper at your door, reality is going to set in. When you get married and you just think, this is the perfect love life that I have ever had, we're going to be happily ever after for the rest of my life. You're going to roll over one day and say, reality has set in. Marriage is still great. You should get married. But I'm just saying, reality sets in one day. And then here's the biggest one. You're going to have kids one day. Maybe some of you. I'm not saying all of you. Dear Lord, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying, though, for those of you who do have kids, one day reality is going to set in. They're going to get up in the middle of the night, and you're going to be rocking a kid at 2 in the morning with throw up all over your shoulder. And you're going to say, Lord God, how did I get here? Reality sets in. And for us tonight, I want the reality of sin to set in for us. Because I believe, by and large, we have a generation, and I'm not talking about your generation. I'm talking about a multitude of generations. The X, Y, Z, B, D, I don't know, all of them. All them suckers. We have missed the reality of sin. And it's because we were too scared of legalism. But here's the truth. Holiness to a backslidden uh, believer will come across as legalism. And because we got so scared of being too legalistic, we put up our blinders to the reality of sin in this world, to the reality of sin in our lives. Now, some of you, listen, I'm kind of jaded, so I think this way. I don't know if it's 
weird or not, but I just do. Some of you, when you hear the word sin, what goes through your mind? Maybe you roll your eyes. Maybe you're like, oh, here we go. Nobody wants to hear about sin. Great job, Logan. You got some old guy to talk about sin. Everybody's going to be gone next week. Where is the karaoke? Maybe some of you grew up in a legalistic church, and when you hear sin, you get a little twitch because you got some PTSD going on. But the reality is, is when I mention sin, it's not really that foreign to us. It seems like it is that nobody likes to talk about it, but here's the truth. A lot of people like to talk about it. Here's a couple things I wrote down. We all don't mind talking about sin when it comes to our standard. We all don't mind talking about sin when it comes to our authority. What do I mean by that? You don't care to tell someone that they're wrong if it offends your standard or if you are the authority. As a pastor, I can't tell you how many times people come to me and say that they are upset and I should live a way that they think I should live. I literally had a joker come into my office one time and tell me how to preach a sermon. I'm not going to name names. But they did. And, it, and that's the truth is we don't mind talking to other people as long as sin is up to my standard, as long as I get to define it. You know, if I was up here to say some terrible things, people would come and they would let me know. Get on social media. It is everywhere. But here's the truth. We only get mad at sin when it's defined not by our authority or by our standard. And we all get upset because we say the highest standard, the highest authority of sin is God. He is the deciding factor. He is the one that decides it. He is the authority and the standard of sin, and we must come to the reality of sin if we want to see revival. Why do I say that? The largest revival in the Old Testament. Does anybody know who it was? What city, what nation? The people of? There is one lone ranger. Who said that? You get a cookie after the service. Go see Logan. I hope you have cookies. I don't know if you do. But it was the city of Nineveh. And what happened? Jonah came to Nineveh and said, all you suckers are sinners. You need to repent because God is bringing judgment. And what did they do? They repented, put on sackcloth and ashes from the king on down. For some, they believe around 800,000 people repented and trusted in God. So one of the greatest revivals that we ever know about in the Old Testament, in Scripture, started with the reality of sin. And so I want to talk to you about the reality of sin tonight. I want you to see what it does to you, to our lives, to others, and what we need to do about it. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Joshua chapter 7. Actually, let's start in Joshua chapter 6, verse 18. I want to kind of set the context for you. So Joshua is leading the people of Israel, okay? They're headed to the promised land, and they're like wandering around in the wilderness. And so as they're entering into the promised land, they are conquering different cities, okay? And so they are conquering the city of Jericho, the walls of Jericho. Do y'all know that story? They walk around seven times, it falls down, boom, right? But God gives specific instructions, To the people of Israel. And Joshua tells them, verse 18, but you keep yourself from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the of the devoted things 
and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. That sounds pretty clean cut, right? Joshua says, hey, y'all, watch this. The Lord said we're going to conquer it. But when we do, don't touch any of these things. Do y'all realize how complicated we make it? Imagine if God did not tell us what he expected. But here, God communicated what he expected. God communicated what would happen. It reminds me of me talking to my two-year-old. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and a baby on the way. And that two-year-old, he's got some anger issues. He likes to grab a coffee cup and smash his brother on the head. Yeah, pray for me. Pray for me right now. That's what he does. Before I left, he had the dog leash trying to choke me before I left. And he was saying, Daddy Wessel, Daddy Wessel, because he loves to, I don't know, whistle, wrestle, whatever it is, he likes to do. And his wrestling is biting, punching, hitting. He's just a red man, very feisty, okay? But I will tell him, Elijah, that's his name, ah, man of fire. Okay, Elijah, you need to calm down, son. Elijah, do not hit your brother. If you hit your brother, you will get a spanking. He will then go grab his play hammer and smack his brother in the middle of the back and then tell me he didn't hit him, but the hammer hit him. Yeah, he's a lawyer too. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not how it works. But it doesn't matter how many times I tell him. And then when he gets in trouble, he acts like he's surprised. Like, why am I in trouble? What did I do? He'll sit there as I'm coming to him to to discipline him, either put him in timeout or, you know, do whatever we got to do. He goes, why, 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 why? I'm like, why? You just concussed your brother. What do you mean, why? You should know why. I told you. I told you what not to do. And a lot of us get angry at God for the same thing. One day, there will be millions and billions of people shocked that God is going to bring judgment on them. But he told you so. You just didn't believe his authority. You just believed that your authority was higher than his authority. And that's what we're about to see with the people of Israel. They did not believe the word of God. They didn't believe it. Even though God had done miraculous things, you would think if he has done all these things and you just saw the walls of Jericho, if you saw that, wouldn't you believe, yeah, if he can do that, he can probably do that to me. I'm not touching that. But look what happens. Chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of that name, son of Zabadee, son of Zerah, all those things, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. 
Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. Let's stop right there. So Achan believes no one knows what he did. Achan takes some of the devoted things and he hides them in the tent. Here's a good lesson for all of us tonight. What we cover up, God will uncover. There are people who have passed away from this life thinking the sins that they never repented for, the sins that they never got judgment for, they believe they are dead and gone. What we cover up, God will uncover. We're talking about at the end. But I want you to see that. Achan's feeling pretty sly. He's like, I got it. I got some of the gold. And we're going to see what he took later on. But he buries it in the tent. And he's thinking, man, I've covered it up. Nobody knows this, but God will uncover it. And so Joshua, they're, they're continuing on their quest. Joshua doesn't know that there is sin in the camp. He doesn't know that Achan has taken stuff. And so now they're coming to this next city. And it's nothing like Jericho. This city is tiny. We only need to send up about 3,000 people because we're going to wipe the floor with them. It's like Alabama playing, I don't know, name any peewee team. It's like them. It's like playing them. It's like, oh, we don't got to worry about this. This is easy. We can go handle this. But look what happens. Verse 4. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people. And they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men. And chased them before the gates as far as Shebron. And struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So the people of Israel went from having God with them, the presence of God with them, conquering cities that they could not, lowering walls that they could not, to now the presence of God has left them. And why has the presence of God left them? Because there was sin in the camp. The first reality that we must know about sin is sin separates us from God. If you're the note-taking type, write that down. Sin separates us from God and separates us from the presence of God. Why? Why does it separate us? If you are a person that likes to ask questions, that is me. I love to know why. Don't tell me something happens or something is true without telling me the why. I'm that annoying person. Hey, get up. We got to go right now. Why? Are you going to kill me outside? Are you going to shoot me with a paintball gun? Like my mind goes to some dark places. You're going to throw a pie in my face. What is it? Is someone going to pour water on me? I don't like cold water. Don't do that. And so why does sin separate us from God? I want to show you a passage of scripture in the Bible from Isaiah 6. This is the prophet Isaiah, and God brings him up in a vision, and God literally opens the window to heaven, to the throne room of God. So you're getting a picture of heaven right now, and it's not like the books you read where there's ponies and unicorns everywhere. You're getting a true picture of the throne room of the Almighty. 
And look what happens. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. He was high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. That means there is no one like him. The royalty by the length of his robe shows he is matchless. He is high and lifted up that even in this realm at the throne room, he is not on the same level as God. He is high and lifted up. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. Two they covered their face. Two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. So that means that God's presence was so much that they covered their face and they covered their feet. These are heavenly beings. That God is so matchless in his majesty that they have to cover themselves. And then look what happens in verse 3. And one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy. Did they just have a stuttering problem? No. They said holy, holy, holy on purpose. Because in the Hebrew language, when you repeated something three times, it meant it was the absolute truth. So if you're tall, I'd be like, tall, tall, tall. In Hebrew, I'd be like, hey, you're really tall. Or if you're really short, never mind. I'm just going to stop there. Dumb joke. But that's what it is. They are calling out that God's character, it literally means he is the definition of holiness. It is his being. We only know what righteousness is. We only know what justice is. We only know what holiness is because it's the character of God. It is who he is. He defines it because it is who he is. He is holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, which speaks to Romans 1 that we can see the glory of God in the fallen creation still. Look in a mirror. Look at the complexity of who you are. You are made in the image of God, and whether you love him or not, whether you worship him or not, you still proclaim the glory of God because he has made you. That's how majestic God is. The whole earth proclaims his glory. Everything that we know about God, he is holy. What does holy mean? He is separate from us. That literally means there is no other being, no other creature, no other creation, no other entity that is like him. Everything else has been made from something. Not so much with God. He is the OG, the originator. There is none like him. And look what Isaiah does in this moment, okay? Look what he does in this moment. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. See, worship services should have smoke. I'm just kidding. The house was filled with smoke. Verse 5, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Notice what Isaiah did the first time he saw the Lord. 
Have you ever thought about that? What are you going to do when you see Jesus? You know, a lot of us, we think like elementary. We're like, oh, I'm going to high-five Jesus. I'm going to run to him like, what's up, bro? Finally, we made it. You know, you're going to do all that. Our first response when we see Jesus is the same response that everyone has had in Scripture when they come before the holiness of God. Isaiah doesn't ask him questions. What are my loved ones doing? Isaiah doesn't say, hey, who am I going to marry? Isaiah doesn't say, hey, what's going to happen with the world? Isaiah falls to his face. And the first thing he does when he comes into the presence of God is he falls down and he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I am a sinful man. And woe is me and the people that I come from, for they are sinful. When you see God for who he is, then you truly see yourself for who you are. And you see the world for who they are. And your heart becomes woefully shameful and repentant. Because you realize that God is holy. And you are sinful. And that sin separates you from God. And that's the first reality of sin that we must realize is that it separates us from God and it separates the world from God because he is holy. The second reality of sin that I want us to see, we got to get moving here, is that your sin hurts others. I'm going to say that again. Your sin hurts others. Look what happens with Achan and with Israel. Okay, he sins thinking, hey, I could have a lot of money. Hey, I could have some gold and silver up in my tent. I can redo my camel, pimp my rod. That's what he's thinking. He's wanting to do all this. But he never takes into account how his sin is going to affect other people. Look what happens. Because of the sin of Achan, verse 5, Joshua sent the men up there. And the men of Ai killed about 30 Six of their men. That means 36 fathers, 36 sons, 36 brothers did not come home to their families that day. People with names, with lives died. Why? Because of the sin of Achan. Jump with me to verse 24. This is even worse and more sad. Verse 24. And Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Accor. And Joshua said, why did you bring this trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all of Israel stoned him with stones. And they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. Because of the sin of Achim, him, his family, even his donkey and sheep got stoned and set on fire. Here's the problem that I see a lot as a pastor. And if I can get this through to your head now at such a young age, you can make a difference for generations. Sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't. It too many times people believe that sin happens in a vacuum. They believe I'm going to do this and if I get caught, it's just going to affect me. No, 
Your sin hurts others. If you get married one day and you cheat on your spouse, that sin is going to create devastation. It matters. Your sin hurts other people. We must realize that our sin affects people. When you sin, listen, we all sin. I'm not up here like Dudley Do-Right, okay? But when you sin, do you, do you realize not only are you separated from God, but, but your sin, it affects other people. I can't tell you how many families that I've even had in my office that have been torn apart because of one person's sin. I guarantee you in this crowd tonight, which it is a big old crowd, there are people When I'm speaking this, you wish your dad would have never sinned. You wish your mom would have never sinned. You wish your brother or someone in your family would have never done. You know what I'm talking about. Because sin, the reality of sin, it separates us, but also it hurts others. The third reality of sin. Sin must be dealt with. Sin must be dealt with. Look what happens in verse 10. Before I read verse 10, I want to give you a summary of some things that have happened. So Joshua, all the, all the people of Israel are sad. They're like, we got beat by AI. We're, we're done. The Lord is no longer with us. And he is crying. He is weeping. He is tearing his clothes. He's saying, God, why poor pitiful me? Oh, is that not a picture of us, believer? Where Our lives are falling apart. There is destruction. There is failure. And we're crying on our face going, why is this happening? God, why have you forsaken us? Where is the presence of God in my life? And here's the answer. Look what the Lord tells Joshua in verse 10. Then the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before the enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. I'm going to stop right there. So what God says is, hey, Joshua, you want to know why everything's falling apart? You want to know why there's destruction? You want to know why God is no longer with you? Because you got sin in your camp. And some of us, we're wondering why we haven't heard from God. We're wondering why God's not working. We're wondering why we're on our sixth relationship of the fall semester alone. And it's because you got sin in your life that you ain't dealt with. And God is saying, get up and deal with the sin. And once you deal with that, you will then hear from me. Let's jump back to Isaiah chapter 6. I just want to show you this. Oh, no, I flipped to John. Whoops. All right, Isaiah 6, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. This is after Isaiah says, I am dirty. I have unclean lips. I am a sinful man. 
One of the seraphim flew to him, having his hand a burning coal that he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt, your sin has been taken away. And your sin is atoned for. Notice that Isaiah did not speak to God or hear from God until his sin had been dealt with. Look what happens in verse 8. The very first time he hears God speak, it's after his sin has been dealt with. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then Isaiah said, Here I am I, send me. Our sin must be dealt with. And if you're wondering why you haven't heard from God, if you're wondering why God hasn't given you that next assignment, if you're wondering why you're in limbo, it might be. I'm not saying it definitely is, but it might be you have sin in the camp and the Lord's saying, get up and deal with it. It might be that he's already called you to take that next step of obedience and you haven't done it yet. If you haven't walked in obedience to what God has already shown you, why would he give you more to obey? Why would he give you what's next? And I see this all the time. Do you know where I see it, especially with people your age? It's with baptism. You know that you've trusted in Jesus. You've been saved, and you know that you are called to get biblically baptized, but you won't do it. I don't know why. It comes to, well, I do know why, because that was me. It comes to pride. It comes to my family. Well, this, that, and the other. And the reality is, is God has already called you to take a step of obedience. Take that step. And what we see with Israel is they had to deal with the sin before the presence of God would be with them again. And listen, students, let me just be honest with you. Sin must be dealt with, and God's going to deal with it all one day. I, I want you to hear this. God is going to deal with every sin. When I say sin must be dealt with, not only do you need to deal with it with Jesus in your life, you need to repent of that sexual immorality. You need to repent of that pride, that anger, that apathy. Apathy means laziness. All of that, you need to repent of that in your lives. But there is a day coming, and it is the day of judgment, where sin must be dealt with. That is a reality, that God is going to deal with sin. Every sin that has ever been sinned, every murderer, every racist, every rapist, every liar, every sin. There is not one sin that will go unpunished. Because I know we love to say, where is God in his justice? Don't worry, that cup of wrath is filling up and the day of judgment is coming. And when God deals with sin, when the sin must be dealt with, there's two ways that God's going to deal with it. My Apple Watch is telling me to calm down. No, baby, I'm preaching. There are two ways. If I fall from a heart attack, just praise God, okay? There are two ways that God is going to deal with this sin, okay? The first is he is going to bring judgment on every person that is sinful and rejects God. What do I mean by that? Some of us like to, to have a different definition for God. Some of us like to redefine God. Some of us, because we believe our morality is somehow better, 
We say, God, you shouldn't judge that way and you shouldn't judge those sins. You shouldn't do that. Where we think we have authority to tell God that, I don't know. But God says, no, I am holy and my character is just and I am righteous. And yeah, that lie might not matter to you, but it matters to me. You don't know about that rape, but it matters to me. And I will punish every sin and every sinner. Judgment will come because it's who I am. I am the definition of holiness. I am the definition of justice. And one day, I'm going to bring my presence in the new creation and a new earth, and I will dwell with my creation. And just like when a light is turned on, darkness cannot stay in the room. When God shows up, sin can't stay. When God shows up, sin can't stay. It can't. And so when he comes back, he's going to judge everyone. And I want you to imagine what happened with Achan. I want you to imagine on that day, I want you to paint this picture in your mind. If you're one of those dreamers, dream with me. Achan had sinned, and they now know it's Achan, and he now confesses to the whole camp. I think it's in like verse 24 or 23. It says, and they took out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid down before the Lord. And Joshua said to all Israel, here's Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold. So they're pulling everything out of the tent. And they're saying, hey, Achan, because of your sin, destruction's come on us. You are now going to be judged. Imagine what was in his heart as he's walking down that path to the area that they're going to stone him. He knows what's coming. Do you know why he knows what's coming? Because he knows what the commandment of God was and he did not listen. Imagine how he's feeling with his family behind him, his sheep and his donkey. And he's walking, and he's about to be destroyed with stones and with fire. I guarantee you he was thinking, I wish there was a way for me to be forgiven. I wish there was a way for me to get out of this. If someone would have stepped up and said, hey, Achan, I'll take the punishment for you. I guarantee you Achan would have said, yes, please, I don't want to experience this judgment. The sad thing is there was none. And for a lot of people... There's two ways that God's going to deal with sin. The first is you will pay for your sin according to his standards. Not your standards, not what you read in a book, not what you and your friends vote on, not what you have in your social media and what you read. You are going to be judged against a holy God's standard. That's not be me being mean. That's me telling you the truth. It's going to happen. And you can live your life however you want it, but just know you will pay for your sin. You will, because God will judge every sin. So that's the one way that God will deal with it. He will judge that sin, okay? The second way is you can let Jesus Christ, the Son of God, take the judgment for your sin. See, what Scripture teaches, and people don't believe this, or they don't understand it, is that Jesus came because we were sinful. He came died on the cross, lived a perfect life, so that perfect and holy life is given credit to us, and the sin that must be judged was taken out on Jesus. Because God is merciful and loving, but he is just, holy, and righteous. So how do those two things come together? On the cross, Jesus took my sin. Guess what? I ain't going to experience judgment at the end, not because of anything I've done, but because I have repented of my sin and placed my faith in Jesus. 
So my question, how am I going to end it tonight? My question is, do you see the reality of sin tonight? Do you see that it separates you from God? Do you see that your sin hurts others? And do you see that your sin must be dealt with? And that's the good news of Jesus Christ is that God loved you so much that he sent Jesus so that you could experience forgiveness and freedom and love and mercy and you could dwell with God forever and ever. Last thing I want to say, and then I'm going to lead us into a time of response. Our greatest problem isn't a political problem. Our greatest problem isn't an emotional problem. Our greatest problem isn't a moral problem. Our greatest problem isn't an ethical problem. Our greatest problem is that we have a sin problem. The band's coming up to lead us in a time of response. And here's what I'm going to do. I don't know if y'all like to move in this room. But here's what I know. We're on the verge of God doing something. And when you see God for who he is, you can't help but respond. And so I'm going to give you two challenges tonight. The first is, those of you who've got sin in your camp, repent. Ask God to forgive you. Scripture teaches us he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you've got sin in your camp, ask God to forgive you because it separates you, it hurts others, and it must be dealt with. The last thing I want to say is, for those of you who have never experienced the forgiveness and love of Jesus Christ, repent of your sin and believe, and you will be saved. At the end of time, when God judges sin, can you honestly say that Jesus took my judgment? That's the good news of Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes in this moment. And I want to ask you, if you know that your life is full of sin and for the first time tonight you have realized that your sin separates you from a holy God, that your sin hurts others and that your sin must be dealt with. And if you desire tonight for God to deal with your sin, for Jesus to deal with your sin, for you to be forgiven, I just want you to look at me real quick. Just make eye contact with anybody else. Okay, we got one, two, three. Can y'all wave at me because it's kind of dark in here. I see you back. Just wave at me. It's okay. We're all cool. All right, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. I want to talk to you, okay? I'm not going to pull you up here. I don't care about that. I don't care what anyone in this room thinks. What I care is that you get right with God. So here's what I'm going to do. While everybody's not looking, I'm going to ask you to do something bold. Can you stand up and go to the lobby? Yeah, you right there. Can you stand up? We already got one. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Head to the back. We already got two walking back. You, go ahead. Yeah, I'll meet you in the lobby. It's okay. Tell them to get out of the way. You got things to do with Jesus. Anybody else? We got people moving. Anyone else? Hopefully they're not running away. Hopefully they're waiting for me in the lobby. Anybody else that needs to get saved tonight? Okay. I'm going to shut this thing down so I can talk to people about Jesus. But do not leave this room without dealing with your sin. And do not leave this room without taking a step of obedience. If you need to get baptized, come find me in the lobby. Just get up and go. 
And if someone tries to stop you, say, I got to go. I got things to do. Let's not leave here. Let's move because God is on the verge of doing something. God, would you, murk, would you work and would you move, also known as Merck, would you work and would you move in this room tonight? We've already seen people get up to come to know you as Lord and Savior. Would you continue to move? Lord, I would love nothing more than when we stand and sing that people flood either this, this room, this altar down front. They would get on their knees. They would pray. They would cry out to you to forgive them of their sins. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.